Hi everyone, welcome back to the Outliers podcast. I'm your host Pankaj Mishra and we are back with a new season of Outliers called the season of resilience. These are uncertain times and everyone is trying to cope with uncertainties, anxiety and so many unanswered questions. We thought we could be useful to all of you by doing a fresh series of conversations with Outliers and some new guests please stay safe and i really hope all of us get out of this stronger and more resilient thank you today i am really thrilled to be talking to tanmay bakshi again uh, tanmay welcome to the podcast thank you very much for having me on here pankaj you know a lot has changed uh, you are still a teenager. <laughs> yes, I, I still am a teenager. Uh, this is the third time I think I'm I'm doing um, a session with you, and, and still am. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I I hope to catch up just before you move to the other side. Uh, no, I think it's a long time to go. Still two years. Yep. <laughs> Wait, no, still three years. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Tanmay. Uh, not not such great times uh, for humanity uh, what we are going through n- right now mm-hmm. and uh, you know i also picked uh, you know there was a bereavement in your family and you couldn't travel there's so much happening around us i thought i would also look at the world through your lens as someone who is who is young uh, who is uh, at the cutting edge of a lot of things mm-hmm. what do you make of what's going on tanmay what's happening so I mean, really what I would say is, even though that's a very uh, sort of open-ended statement, like what's happening today in the world, uh, I would say that mainly what's happening is people are starting to realize the importance of certain things that, that we before started, that we before would take for granted is, is the way that I would describe it. And this includes a lot of things, right? So this includes all the way from a technical lens that I would usually take a look at things, all the way to like a more general lens of even just the infrastructure of how humanity itself works, um, mm-hmm. how, how society is structured and, and how things get done. Um, and so, like, for example, uh, up until a couple of months ago before this entire pandemic started, um, something as simple as, you know, say a truck driver's job going from point A to point B and ensuring goods get to where they need to go to ensure that people can continue to live their lives properly, or the cashier at a grocery store making sure that you can actually purchase the things that you need to purchase that, that are essential to you surviving. These are things that we, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't necessarily value as much as we should have, um, just a couple of months ago. Um, and I, I feel like let's just go back in time a little bit um, and let's completely forget about what's happening now. Um, and let's just say a couple of months ago, I was in another interview. I mean, it, maybe even last time on Outliers, we had talked about this or in all sorts of interviews. And, and whenever people ask me questions about things like, say, AI or machine learning, uh, you would ask questions like, for example, you know, isn't it a bad thing that AI is going to be taking away jobs or that machine learning technology is going to replace a lot of the things that, that humans do today? And that would that would cause um, that would cause, you know, bad things to happen for society. And yeah. if, if we fast forward a little bit today, we're starting to realize that having humans work in places where they are essentially acting as the infrastructure for higher value things to take place isn't necessarily a good thing. 
Because think about this. In the midst of this pandemic, what is the one thing that everyone should be doing? Staying home and preventing themselves from encountering any sort of social situations or in interacting with anyone else in, in a physical manner. Yes. Because if you think about it, the way a vaccine works is by giving us herd immunity, by making it so that the vast majority of us can't get infected and therefore can't spread the virus. So if we were, if we don't have an actual vaccine, a biological vaccine, then we could administer a kind of social vaccine, is how I think of it, um, by ensuring that we don't interact physically and therefore the virus cannot spread and therefore uh, it'll eventually go extinct. Um, XKCD has a great comic on this and it perfectly describes what the logic is behind this. But the problem is that completely removing human interaction altogether is impossible because of the way society's infrastructure has been has been set up we still need people to drive goods around we still need people to fly these these empty planes for the few people that need to travel we still need people to be in the grocery stores enabling people to purchase goods these are essential roles that Unfortunately, people need to be physically present for. We still need healthcare workers that aren't actual physicians that are just there, again, handling the infrastructure of, say, hospitals, people like nurses. And the problem with this is that currently we have humans out there, and that means there is there is spread of the virus, and that means the virus is not going extinct, and we need it to go extinct as soon as possible. So in a situation like this one, we start to realize that maybe what we should have been doing all along would be using technology to replace lower value jobs like the ones that simply build up infrastructure for society and and enable those people to be genuinely useful in other areas where they are directly contributing towards higher value um, output. So what I would say is happening right now is we're starting to realize the importance of a lot of things that we previously would take for granted. And I feel like it's it's a good time for us to realize that human intelligence and human uh, skills are better used when they are applied in an area where they're genuinely adding value and not necessarily just building the being the building blocks actually for others to add value. So that's 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 what I think is, is happening here. And that that's very well made the point. Uh, you know, just a follow-up question, Tanmay. Let's say, uh, you know, I don't wish another pandemic at all, but let's say a decade from now, uh, if there is another situation, mm-hmm. you know, let's take a science fiction view of things, right? How, how do you think, how, how do you think things should change uh, in over a decade, going by the same argument that you are making about the use of AI? So, I mean, I I think there are many things that need to happen for better pandemic response. One of them that will really help is making it so that essential services, um, things that need to happen for people to continue to live, um, reducing the amount of human interaction necessary for things like this to continue to happen is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, However, from there, there are definitely more steps that would generally need to be taken, in my opinion, that aren't necessarily directly AI related. Like, for example, uh, we need to invest more in 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 planning for pandemic response uh, we need to have that foresight of even if we don't think it can happen it will happen you can see many nations made a couple of mistakes over the past couple of years of, of of dismantling some of the infrastructure they already had for pandemic response and if they had that infrastructure now we wouldn't have such a terrible situation um, so being able to have that infrastructure in place uh, and, and having plans in places is, is definitely very important I would say that's a critical or a key component and what's interesting is that the these individual 
plans can leverage the power of, of artificial intelligence technology. So, for example, if you take a look, the first country to know of this start of the pandemic before any other country was actually Canada, because they've got a system that uses things like flight logs and, and manifests in order mm-hmm. to say, hey, they were able to use machine learning to say, I think something uh, something's going wrong in China uh, because uh, because of the fact that um, because of the fact that these flight manifests are looking weird, and by using machine learning, they were able to determine that automatically. Wow. And so, uh, and so, so the thing is, I would say that more generically, we need to have better pandemic response plan. Now, the cherry on the top, the icing on the cake, is being able to have essential services implemented without the need for human interaction. That's like, that's something that is, is, is going to really, really help if we get to a stage like this one. But my whole goal is we shouldn't need to get to a stage like this one. We should be able to have the, 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 the infrastructure in place in order to prevent us from doing that. For example, IBM research has this application um, that enables uh, doctors and researchers to actually find drugs um, for COVID-19 and, and also sorts of other um, diseases and uses machine learning to filter down to only the molecules that uh, that are that are genuinely useful or important or can be in some way um, uh, useful again to the doctors and what that does is it prevents the doctors from having to go through thousands and thousands of molecules that are that are completely useless but they don't know until they run a simulation but now they can use machine learning to filter them down to like uh, the, the the candidate pool that actually has some kind of utility and then run their simulations and then run their tests. Uh, so there's a multitude of different ways that machine learning technology can impact this field. Um, and my sort of vision would be that we apply machine learning more generically to immediate response and prevention um, rather than once we get to a stage like this one, how can we continue to live? Um, so that's 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 what I would say. Um, and, and there's all sorts of ways you could extend this, right? Like, for example, faster development of vaccines for novel diseases. Uh, maybe right as the flu season starts, you know, using this kind of technology, we can we can use this to create a flu vaccine that we know will work for this flu season. And when there's a new pandemic, we can use that technology to more quickly develop a vaccine that we know will work so we can get them to the clinical trials faster so that we can get them out to the general public faster. So there's a multitude of different ways that machine learning AI can help here. It's more of a question of Will countries and, and institutions be ready to invest in in preparing for something that they may not see immediate economic gain in? Hopefully, they learn their lesson from from this. Absolutely, I think that's the need of the hour. Uh, Tanmay, before we shift to the world of programming and technology, uh, there, there are two uh, battles that we as mind, mankind, you know, keep talking about. Uh, one of them is man versus nature, and the other one about man versus machine, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how do you read these two battles and are they connected in any form? So that's a, that's a really interesting and a, and a very um, thought provoking question. I mean, in, in terms of not just the, my thoughts on man versus nature, man versus machine, but also um, are they connected? I would say they absolutely are connected and I'll get to that connection in a moment, but I feel like in both of these situations, you can't really, the, the term versus the, the competition uh, sort of um, connotation that that has uh, is 
is in my opinion, not necessarily incorrect, but maybe the wrong way to look at things. Um, like for example, nature, it's not really man versus nature. Man is part of nature. It's, it's, it's not really humans competing against nature. You've got to realize that at the end of the day, we are biological creatures. We still share uh, the vast majority of our genes with bananas. Um, and so, uh, and so we, we are part of nature. Uh, I mean, humans, because of the way we are, because of the way our brains are wired, we sometimes think of ourselves as different or in some way superior to, re to the rest of nature. But we aren't, right? At the end of the day, we still are animals. Um, so like even a virus like this one, it, it seems like, you know, the entirety of society has essentially come to a pause, a halt um, for us to get across this hurdle um, because of nature. And, and again, we are natural beings. So this, this happens. Um, so first of all, from the nature perspective, I would say that we shouldn't look at it as man versus nature, but rather how can we adapt to working with nature in, in a way, um, in, in order to in order to achieve what we need to achieve. I mean, we've seen time and time again that nature is capable of achieving things that we simply aren't. Um, like, for example, if you take a look, there are certain species of butterflies, and, and this is actually a really interesting fact. Um, very rarely do you see the color blue um, in in animals or in in insects or things like this, um, and the reason is because no at Almost no animal, I'll keep the word almost there just in case, almost no animal actually creates blue pigment. Um, rather, it's actually just, um, it, they actually structure their their bodies in a way that reflects only blue wavelengths of light um, because they're unable to create that pigment. So like certain species of butterflies, they will actually create, uh, their, their, their wings will be shaped in ways where it only reflects the wavelength of light that we perceive as blue. Um, wow. Or like, for example, your eyes, when, when, if they're actually blue, um, it's actually not because they, they have blue pigment in them, it's because of Rayleigh scattering, which is the same reason the, the sky looks blue. So nature does these incredible things that we, you know, never even thought of and still cannot like do synthetically. So by working with nature and biological and organic things, uh, things like, for example, CRISPR for genetic modification, if we work with nature in that way, that's a lot more effective, in my opinion, than just doing things synthetically. That's a lot more, um, that's just more efficient because if we've spent, if, if proteins have spent billions of years evolving within animals to do gene modification, or sorry, within bacteria in this case, like CRISPR, uh, then we might as well use what we've already, what nature has already built for the past few billions of years. Why start from the ground up? Um, so that's that's one thing. So man versus nature, not really versus. It's it's more of how can we best work with nature. If you were to think that man and nature are two separate things, it's really how can we work better with the environment around us since we are part of nature. Um, but then if we take a look at technology, man versus machine. Again, it's really not man versus machine, especially in this case, because machines are, are things that we've invented to enable a more efficient version of our society to exist. I mean, again, if we come back to, um, if, if we take a look just in the past few hundred years, um, in, in the past, a lot of human man, a lot of manpower really would go into agriculture and just doing things like harvesting crops and, and things like this. And that's incredibly inefficient because when you have humans working on th doing things like harvesting crops, that means you have a very you have a very limited number of crops, um, and, and that means you have less food, and that means you can sustain a lower population. And because of that, a larger percentage of your population is spent doing agriculture. That means a lower percentage of your population can actually be doing other things. 
But then suddenly when you have like this industrial form of agriculture and when you have machines doing most of the work, that means a lot of the people are no longer working on harvesting crops. And that means they can move out to larger cities and work together on things that are more important. Right. So so I feel like, again, this ties back into my same point of it's not that it's versus machines. It's not like the machines replaced the folks doing agriculture and now people don't have jobs anymore. We decided, okay, you know what? We've got spare time. Let's invent new industries. Let's invent new fields to work in. And that's what humans did. And that's what we're going to continue to do. So even when we come up with more complex technology, um, things like machine learning technology to do all sorts of complex things that and I say complex relatively for machines, not for humans, I mean, Driving a truck for humans is relatively easy, but for a computer, it's incredibly complex. When we start to have machines that can do this, I'm not saying that we're no longer going to have jobs. Obviously not. That's not the case. But rather, now we suddenly have so many hundreds of thousands of more people that are out of this sort of building block field, and now they're on the cutting edge of human innovation, um, working towards enabling a a, a better society to exist. So uh, in both cases, it's not man versus anything it's man with both in the in 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 both of those cases and since we are part of nature and since we've invented technology nature has invented technology and 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 technology is a tool that nature uses in order to create uh, or or in order to make nature itself more efficient in some cases there are things that computers can do that nature hasn't been able to do because there's been no selective pressure put on nature in order for it to evolve those certain things i mean there's no selective pressure in the wild for us to you know, find the square root of 5,000 within uh, within a few microseconds. Um, there's no the selective pressure forcing animals to do that, and therefore we don't, which is why we invent technology to do it for us so that we can do the work that we're supposed to do. Um, so in both cases, it's man with whatever, um, and they're related in a pretty, pretty fundamental way. So well said, actually, because most of the times, uh, at least the way they are pitted against each other, Tanmay, let's now shift to the other bucket of our conversation, which is more to do with uh, the future of programming or the future of jobs in, in the technology world, very broadly speaking. But I'll tell you where I'm coming from. You know, India and, and so many other countries that have massive young population, mm-hmm. India, you know, churns out over a million uh, engineering graduates every year. A lot of young engineers uh, or, you know, those studying engineering in their colleges are really anxious because, they, the you know, the way things are going on, everything from automation to future of jobs and, and so on, there is a lot of confusion. So let's tackle this with a more specific question about if if you are an undergrad, if you are studying engineering in college, how can you build a career which is future-proof? Or what are the things you should be focusing on? And then let's get to programming. Sure. So, I mean, let's... So in terms of engineering, that's, that's, pretty, um, that's, pretty, that's pretty broad. But let's, let's... I feel like if we focus on technology in specific uh, for just a moment, uh, I'll be able to yes. sort of, uh, give a better answer. And then we can generalize from there. Um, Absolutely. So one thing that I will say is that 
in the future, there are some jobs that you can take a look at right now and you can you have that sort of foresight that you can say this job won't exist. There are some jobs that are in a gray area. There are some jobs that you know will not be replaced. Um, and and there will be new jobs in the future and all that. But but there's this sort of gradient, uh, I would say, of, of, of jobs in the future. Um, it cannot simply be classified to if you're in field X, you will be replaced. If you're in field Y, you won't be. It's It has to do with all sorts of things. It has to do with the companies that are hiring. It has to do with the economics of, you, of, of, of replacing humans. It has to do with the countries that they're located in the population counts whether humans are cheaper than machines there's all sorts of things that go into what kinds of jobs are are going to be available in the future now if we if we specify on engineering and technology um i believe that very very few if any um tech jobs that directly work with uh creating or architecting new technology will ever be replaced by by other technology at least mm-hmm. um, and the reason i say that is because if you think about engineering as a whole, it is fundamentally a creative task. Um, And by creative, I mean, even something as simple as, uh, for example, putting together a a simple script to download something from the internet and upload it to your own database, like download an email every few seconds um, from your inbox and and put it into your own database, right? It's a simple script to do that. Um, There's so much there's so much hidden complexity that you don't realize when you say that. When you're downloading the emails, what protocol are you using to actually communicate with the mail server? When you're communicating with it, what encoding of text are you using? Um, depending on the encoding, how are you going to deal uh, with things like character counts? If you got um, an emoji, which is a Unicode character, then it's technically multiple characters, multiple bytes at least, but those bytes resolve to a single character. How are you going to deal with that? Then once you've got mm-hmm. it on your server, um, what kind of protocol are you going to use to communicate with your database? And then on your database, how are you going to actually end up inserting that to a table? What's the schema of that table? There's so much hidden complexity there that it takes human creativity to be able to, to create a, a model of that complexity um, and and be able to actually figure out the answers to those questions in, in a sort of deductive reasoning manner, um, even if they're not necessarily specified immediately. Uh, so... The, the general problem-solving architecture that humans have uh, is something that computers won't have, something that machines will never have because of the way machine learning works. It's meant to be able to map data sets X to Y and find that causal link. It's not meant to do anything more than that. Um, and, and so what I would say is in terms of jobs, if you're in like engineering or technology, your main focus should be on understanding the world of technology better, understanding the world, um, of, of computing better, uh, or, or whatever your specific subfield within engineering is. And then from there, trying to determine what, what new jobs will there be in the future thanks to new technology or, or thanks to new infrastructure that we build? So, for example, I can tell you for a fact um, that data scientist jobs are going to be going up in the next few years because there's so much data that we need people to be able to go through it and understand what it means to help us derive insight from it. So maybe what you want to do is focus on specifically, let's just say within engineering or in technology, focus on technology, learn how to program, and then specialize in data science later. But I feel like a lot of people focus too much exclusively on the future and they say i want to be a data scientist and they forget that before you can be a data scientist you've got to learn all those basics of technology be proficient with them and then extend those skills by having data science as a tool in your toolbox not necessarily as 
the tool that you use to solve every problem. Um, so I would say generalize, learn your field inside and out, and then speculate about the future, and then take a look at what you think is going to be going to be huge, and, and then sort of specialize there. Um, that's a pretty technology centric answer, but the reason that I'm saying that is because. I mean, every single day on, on, for example, my YouTube channel where I create tutorials on my email on my social media, I'm getting hundreds of questions from students, again, all across the world asking questions like this one. How can they be ready for the future in terms of planning their career or planning what it is that they want to learn? And I would say focus on what exists today and whatever will happen in the future, treat that as one of the things you specialize in, not necessarily the only thing you do. It would definitely be what I what I would say. Yeah, well said, actually, Tanmay. And and a follow up to that would be: Do you think coding itself is kind of overrated? And and I'm saying that as a as a non engineer, non technologist, and complete outsider. I have no clue about programming. But the reason I'm asking is: I see a lot of emphasis on uh, you know particular languages or, or coding itself, but uh, because I speak to other people in the businesses, I realize there's massive mismatch. So do you think the whole focus on, okay, I want to be like it used to be, I want to be a Java programmer, or now I want to be this. Do you think that's a problem? That is definitely a problem. I would say I've, I've, for, I want to give you an actual example. Um, so I've, uh, so, so, so like even for example, at IBM, uh, any, any competent engineer, any any programmer that is that is doing good at their job is not specific to a certain language. If if someone within uh, any company really, and, and I've seen this with my own eyes at IBM and a bunch of other companies, um, but it really generalizes to any company. Um, if you are a programmer or even, I mean, again, outside of companies, just generally, if you're a programmer and you only specialize in, say, the language of Go uh, or Swift or Java, then that's 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 not a good thing to do because then what you're essentially saying is you don't have a very good problem-solving framework. You just happen to know how to take a flowchart or an algorithm and write that out in Java syntax or write that out in Go syntax. That's what you're saying. And that's the opposite of what people want from programmers. What we want from programmers is not necessarily the ability to write code. That's super simple. Anybody can learn the syntax of Java and take an exact list of steps that you want the computer to follow and program that in Java. But yeah. what a programmer really does, and this is the this is the heart of, of what programmers do, is they take a problem that's written in natural language or, or a problem that they face, and they somehow break that down into logic that they then end up writing in a programming language, but that's secondary. Um, mm. if, if you were to go up to a, a bunch of the programmers that I know that are that are that are you know that are that are good at what they do, um, you could give them a problem. They would be able to break it down into those into those steps, and you could give them quite literally any language. Um, it could be JavaScript, Java, Go, Swift, C sharp, whatever. And even if they've never coded in that language before, they will still be able to code in that logic just by going to a couple of Stack Overflow posts, just by taking a look at a couple of Wikipedia examples, without even looking at the documentation of the language because they understand those basic concepts those basic constructs and how languages put them together and then it's just a matter of how do these languages represent those concepts that's all uh and, and so i would say that what programmers really do is that logic i mean i was telling you a little while ago that humans will never place like actual programmers or engineers in that sense um, because we require creativity for that task 
And, and that's exactly what I'm saying here. It's possible that in the future, programmers won't write any code. It's, it's definitely possible. But they're still going to be there because they're the ones that are going to take the natural language problems, convert that to logic, and then maybe give that logic to the computer for it to write out to code on its own, or maybe write the code themselves. That's up for interpretation and, and speculation for the future. But what's not up for speculation is that programmers will still be the ones making those decisions and writing that logic. And so really it boils down to programmers shouldn't want to, should not say, I want to be a data scientist, or I want to be an AI programmer, or I want to be a Python programmer or a Java programmer. It's not like that. You want to say, I want to create this general purpose problem solving construct or framework within my mind so that I can apply it to any language or any problem. That's, that's really what your goal should be. Yeah, I think that's point really well made. Uh, and like you said, I, I feel these questions all the time. So I thought I'll ask, but point really well made. This uh, also kind of, you know, triggers me to ask this question about death of code itself, right? Uh, and, and, and that's got a lot to do with uh, how programmers talk about it as well. Do, do you think that that's one area where we could see more action when, when you are looking at future of programming? Uh, you are also talking about how in future programmers may not need to code. So which, which means do you really need codes or, you know, so how how, how is the future on, on that front as you see? So uh, in terms of the death of code, um, I mean, there's a very famous comic strip that I, that I sometimes quote. Um, I, I'm forgetting who wrote this comic, but I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find it. Um, the comic goes something along the lines of there's a programmer coding and, and someone walks up to him and says, you know, in the future, we wouldn't need people like you because we could just um, we could just tell the computers what we want. and They would automatically write the code. Um, and 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 the programmer said um, sarcastically uh, that you're right. Maybe we could just define a spec that's um, that that would tell the computer what we wanted to do, uh, a, spe- a spec that is specific enough to define exactly what it is that we want to do. Um, and uh, and and the programmer asks, do you know what that's currently called? Um, and the other guy goes, no. And the programmer says, well, that's called code. Um, and, and, so, um, and so code is that spec that tells the computer what we want it to do. Because remember, computers are just mathematical number crunching machines. Anything that we do with them is fundamentally mathematic. Even if you're working with strings, no matter what you're doing, if you're working with images, it's still mathematical in the back end. Um, how it's represented or how it's shown to you may be different, but it's all still mathematical within the computer. Um, so things need to be written out very, very explicitly. I mean, as explicitly as can be, um, really. Uh, And so what I would say is coding won't die at all. Um, There's still going to need to be people coding in the applications that can convert logic to code. So coding is not going to die. But what's going to happen um, is we might see a reduction in the level of code that needs to be written. If I got to um, create a simple um, part of my code in Swift that connects to a parse server and downloads a certain uh, few rows from a database based off of a certain or a certain class based off of a certain condition and then loads them into a codable structure in Swift, then I'm not going to write out that code because that's very, very well defined what I want to do. Instead, I'm just going to define that logic, maybe in natural language or maybe in some sort of structured representation, and it'll go ahead and fill out some code for me. Maybe I can audit that or maybe I can modify to my liking. Um, But but from there on out, what 
I actually do with that information or the logic that I implement from there, that's going to be something that we need to do ourselves, of course, again. So coding is not going to die. It's just we're going to see a drastic reduction in the amount of code that needs to be done. I mean, even for implementing something like um, Alpha Zero for DeepMind, if you can, yeah. if you think about it, a lot of their time probably didn't even go in in, in thinking about, hey, how do we how do we implement Alpha Zero? What's the algorithm? A lot of their time probably just went in the distribution across 5,000 TPUs and things like this. Repetitive code that didn't really add much value but had to be done to get that minimum amount of, minimum amount of value. Um, so, so you'll need to write less code, but you're still going to need to write the heart of the code, the logic. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Even as an outsider, it makes a lot of sense. Final couple of questions, Tanmay. Uh, the, the one thing uh, I want to understand from you is as uh, a technologist or you know what whatever way you describe yourself i can't call you a programmer uh, what is happening in the world today does it frustrate you or excite you uh, does it underscore the lim- limitations uh, you know of technology uh, because I'll, you know some of us are also talking about how perhaps technology has failed us in in that sense right uh, can things be done faster, more efficient, and so on? So how, what do you feel like right in the battlefield? Uh, are you thrilled uh, in terms of the potential of technology or are you frustrated in terms of its failures? I would say I am thrilled by technology, but I am frustrated by humans. Um, I'm frustrated by the limitations of the human mind, but I'm thrilled by the um, by the scope of expansion of technology in the future. Uh, what I mean by that is, even if you take a look at, no matter what technology it is, I mean, I, I, I focus on machine learning quite a bit. So, I mean, I'm going to take the example of machine learning and AI. Uh, I think AI, um, and I'm going to, use the terms AI machine learning pretty broadly from a technical sense, but um, generally AI machine learning, I believe that technology is incredibly powerful, but also incredibly overestimated Um, and, and just plain misunderstood. It's the most misunderstood technology in the world today is is what I believe. Uh, And that misunderstanding leads to a lot of negative consequences in my opinion. Um, Now, what I mean by misunderstanding is people think of AI or they think of machine learning since this is one of the like frontier next generation technologies. They think of this tech as genuinely intelligent. They think of it as they think of it as empowering technology with intelligence. But that's not the case. What it really is is it's empowering them with mathematical function optimization. So these algorithms have existed for tens of decades. It's just that now we happen to have the compute power to be able to run those mathematical algorithms, and we have the data to feed into those algorithms, but it's still the same algorithms. And a lot of people simply don't realize that. I mean, it's, it's even gotten to the point, and this really frustrates me, where, I mean, even your Apple Watch, right, it detects your falls now. So if you take a fall, it'll detect it, and it might call emergency services if you don't respond. And that uses machine learning to analyze accelerometer data and recognize patterns and be like, oh, this specific pattern of data says you took a fall. Um, but then if you take a look at, um, if you take a look at, for example, the the, the Sophia humanoid robot, that's also yeah. powered by machine learning. That's essentially the same mathematics as what went behind Apple Watch fall detection, just a few more of the same mathematics. 
but suddenly, just because it's in a humanoid form, people start calling it AI or artificial intelligence. They start to think of it in a human fashion. And this does not highlight anything wrong with the technology. It highlights two things. First of all, the fact that people are are, are willing to, um, to leverage technology and misrepresent it for, for, uh, for some certain gain. But also at the same time, the limitations of our human mind innately in the sense that we don't understand technology at a subconscious level. Um, hmm. I, I feel like a good, a good way to describe it would be that intelligence is incredibly expensive. So, uh, for example, um, let's just say uh, humans and chimpanzees, we have a common ancestor. And that common ancestor, when, when we diverged, there was something that humans lost that chimpanzees kept. And that is incredible short-term memory ability. So, like, for example, imagine a game where you're shown just a totally black screen with with 10 numbers in random locations, uh, numbers one, um, 0 through 9, and, and suddenly all those numbers disappear and there's just squares where the numbers used to be, and you have to hit the squares in the order of the numbers where they were, and these are in random positions every time. Um, and let's just say I only show you the numbers for half a second. Now, in the amount of time your brain would have registered that and perceived the numbers, they're already gone. And you have to remember the order and then hit in the right order. That's incredibly difficult. Humans can't do it, but chimpanzees can. And that's because they have that incredible short-term memory ability. Now, the reason humans don't have it well, there's a hypothesis at least, and that's called cognitive trade-off hypothesis. And that is that, that humans, well, we needed to evolve language because the environment that we lived in um, preferred communication among individuals over short-term memory. Chimpanzees, if they see something in a bush somewhere, they need to remember exactly what it looked like immediately to be able to make an informed decision. But we, the environment that we evolved in, didn't necessarily have that same selective pressure. Um, and therefore, our brains let go of that part of our brain and, and evolved a separate component to deal with language. So there had to be a very, very high cost associated with evolving that part of the brain. And even then it took hundreds, if not thousands of years to evolve that separate portion. And it was a slow process. Um, so what, what that proves is, I mean, we've only had modern technology for less than much less than a hundred years. So we haven't had enough time and we definitely haven't had enough selective pressure to force our brains to evolve new components to deal with technology subconsciously. The way we deal with technology is in essentially all consciously. Our system two is dealing with it all the time. And the problem with that is that when you take a look at, for example, Sophia, the humanoid robot, your brain is consciously perceiving it as another human. No matter how much I tell you consciously that Sophia is not a human, no matter how much you realize that and accept that, your brain doesn't accept it. And it, your, your, your subconscious mind is biasing the decisions you make that way. Uh, and, and because of that, humans start to make the wrong decisions for the future. We start to stifle innovation. We start to think about questions like, do robots deserve rights or, or ethics problems around, around technology, even though those are totally the wrong questions to be asking because they don't really make that much sense. But we think about those questions just because of the fact that our subconscious mind is filtering that data before it hits us in our, in our conscious minds. And we're thinking, hey, maybe this is a relevant question to ask, even though it actually isn't from a technical perspective at least. So what I'm what I'm saying is 
artificial intelligence isn't nearly as powerful as a lot of people think it is, or at least in, in the way that a lot of people think it is. Um, but it's still incredibly exciting to me from a technological perspective because it's enabling us to analyze data that we never could have analyzed before. And I'm sure the technology is going to grow exponentially in the future. It's just, it's not going to grow as people expect it to. So I'm frustrated in the sense that people don't understand technology the way it should be understood. But I'm excited in the sense that from a technologist perspective, there's so much more to do with that technology in the future. There's so much more stuff to invent. There's so much more impact that we can have on people's lives with that technology. <laughs> what you said about, the, you know, why we ask wrong questions is, is so deep and it, it explains a lot of things. I mean, not just in terms of technology for me, at least, even if you were to look at the bigger spiritual pursuits, you know, it, it makes so much of sense. Good. Uh, you know, final uh, question, Tanma, you know, you know, every conversation with you is, is kind of taking a fresh leap in understanding the world better, at least for me. <laughs> so, so it's, it's fascinating. What I want to know from you is uh, how, how do you keep up? I mean, how do you learn? What is that learning machine? How does it work? How do you stay updated? <laughs> so, I mean, really, whatever it is that I learn about, um, it's all stuff that I'm that I'm fascinated by, right? It's all stuff that that interests me. And there's a lot of stuff that really interests me, right? It, it goes all the way from from things like psychology and, and linguistic psychology to technology and programming to AI. Um, there's all sorts of stuff that I love. Um, but in, in terms of how I learn, I feel like the way that I learn is very example-based. It's very much um, experience-based uh, rather than the, rather than um, sort of reading or, 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 or perceiving-based. What that means is the way that I like to learn is I don't have a structured curriculum or set of rules that I follow saying, I want to learn this. This is what I'm going to follow. These are the YouTube videos I'm going to watch. These are the books I'm going to read. And I will have learned this. That's not how I do it. Um, so, I mean, from a technological perspective, for example, if I wanted to learn how LLVM works and how compilers are able to optimize my code and how I can write custom instrumentation, um, then I wouldn't say, hey, let me buy an LLVM book and I'm going to read it and then I'm going to be an LLVM expert. Rather, what I would do is say, all right, how, uh, maybe start with specifically my problem. Why do I want to learn LLVM? Then can I find something that's similar to the problem already on GitHub? Can I just run that myself and try and learn from that example? Then from that example, can I see what it is that I don't understand and try and implement it myself? As I implement that myself, can I try and expand the scope a little bit to help me edge forward my knowledge of LLVM at the same time taking a look at documentation or books or YouTube videos to understand and fill in the gaps of my knowledge? And, and over time, as I continue to increase that scope and continue to, by complete happenstance, come across different information, I will have learned something in, in, in that sense. So there's no very structured way. It's really just I'm very curious about something and I want to continue to learn about it. Um, I mean, even this like, you know, cognitive trade-off trade -off hypothesis I was talking about um, had a pretty unexpected origin in terms of how I learned it. Um, it actually starts off back when I was uh, 11, I had um, started using the Watson Personality Insight Service, which is a service that IBM provides that can take certain text and try and predict personality traits based off of it. So based off of the way someone writes text, it can try and predict, uh, you know, how curious that person is or how, um, how much it can, it can predict the top five personality traits, things like this. 
And so from that, that led me into the world of machine learning, that led me into the world of psychology and and specifically linguistic psychology, which led me to the world of, you know, how humans evolved to have language in the first place and and, and all this. So it's really one thing leads to another over time that that enables me to learn. Um, and, And on top of that, the fact that there's there, there's two more things that that are sort of crucial pillars to, to making this happen, and that is first of all, there's no pressure um, from from anywhere for me to have to do any of this, right? So, for example, I mean, if I have say like a keynote to do on technology, I don't take that as pressure. I take that as just you know I enjoy doing keynotes. I enjoy sharing what it is that I learn about technology, and it's not like oh there's a deadline and I'm stressing about the deadline. It's that you know I'm I'm, I'm working towards it because I would have been doing it any way um, because that's what I find fun and on top of that the support that I have for my family to enable me to do this sort of stuff is is the critical infrastructure that enables it to happen really my family and my mentors sort of helping me and guiding me along the way uh, and, and 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 sort of answering the questions that I don't necessarily have the experience to answer yet um, so so all sorts of things that really come together to, to to enable me to do that but essentially it boils down to the fact that there is no real structure or method to it, but rather learning in a problem-based or curiosity-based fashion. <laughs> I think randomness is the closest I will ever get to you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, you know, it, like I said, it, it's like a fresh leap of understanding every time I, I speak with you. And uh, please stay uh, this way and stay curious. Thank you. And forward to keep talking. Thank you very much. It was great to be on the podcast and uh, hope to have another conversation before I'm no longer a teenager again. Thank you.